Welcome to The Body Nerd Show. I'm your host, Alexandra Ellis, and after a decade in the fitness industry, I've finally cracked the code on how you can build sustainable strength without getting hurt. I'm a coach, writer, yogi, kettlebell devotee, lover of lifting heavy things, and 100% a body nerd. So stick with me, and I'll teach you how to make body maintenance and movement mastery a fundamental part of your wellness routine. Are you ready? Let's do this. Welcome back. You're listening to episode 178 of The Body Nerd Show. On today's episode, I'm joined by Dr. Ashley Mack, and we're talking about why pain isn't just structural and the role of your brain in pain, how tissue healing happens, and why you might still have pain even if there's nothing wrong. We first were introduced to Dr. Ashley Mack on episode 171, All About Sciatica. And as body nerds, we totally hit it off. As a physical therapist, he brings a wealth of knowledge to the conversation, and he's also just a super cool person. So I knew we had more to talk about, and therefore he is back. And this time we're digging into the science of pain. Literally after our last conversation, I was like, Ashley, what do you want to talk about? And he's like, pain. And I said, that's a great idea. We should talk about that because pain is more nuanced than most people realize because sometimes it seems so straightforward, right? I have X wrong with me. It's showing up on an MRI. It's showing up on a, you know, scan, whatever. And that's why I have pain. But maybe you had surgery to fix that thing, but you still have pain. Or maybe you're in a situation in which you don't have anything structurally wrong with you. And when I say wrong, I hope you're like feeling the air quotes I'm using. You know, they can't find anything and yet you still have pain. Because pain and how your body feels overall is a combination of what's going on in your body, in your mind and brain and nervous system, and in your spirit. And honestly, you cannot separate any one of those and work on that alone because it's all so interconnected. So I'm really grateful to have Dr. Mack with us today to share more on the science of pain, because like with everything else, when you understand the why behind what you're doing, the decisions you make about what to actually do are that much more well-informed. Dr. Ashley Mack is a physical therapist, a movement specialist, and entrepreneur. And after overcoming his own unrelenting back pain and sciatica as a college student, Ashley was determined to share the route to pain relief with the clients that he works with. He's been a licensed physical therapist for 10 years and is the founder of ifixyoursciatica.com, which is a platform for people suffering with low back pain and sciatica. And he believes that you can live pain-free without the use of surgery and medications. And with his system, he's been able to help thousands of people live pain-free and recover from pain. So enjoy my conversation today with Dr. Ashley Mack. Welcome back, Ashley. I'm so stoked that you are here, that we can nerd out further about pain science and the body. So first of all, thank you. (laughs) And then second of all, in the true body nerd show spirit, uh, what's something that you've been nerding out about lately, like the last thing that you learned? Well, recently I had an opportunity to meet with uh, Julie Tupler, which I don't know if you've heard of her, but she has been in the diastasis recti rehabilitation world for the past 30 years. And uh it's, it's so fascinating. And the reality is that I have not experienced and will not experience the wonders of childbirth and Mm -hmm. childbearing because I don't have those organs. Right. And so with that (laughs) Mm -hmm. being the case, there's a, this condition, diastasis recti, it's a separation of the rectus abdominis 
has a huge impact in regards to back pain, sciatica, and all a whole bunch of other issues. And Mm -hmm. whenever I came across situations like that, I would be like, oh, okay, let's go ahead and try like a couple of different gentle core exercises and make sure that it doesn't go worse. And I had the opportunity to interview Julie Tupper last week, which was so cool. And she had the, and, and during the podcast, she was talking about the causes, things that could actually help out specifically. And that really sparked an opportunity for me to just nerd out about diastasis. It was really, really cool. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Okay. I'm going to have to ask you later to make a connection. Cause I'm like, wait, I need that too, please. I think so often for, uh, you know, postpartum doctors are like, well, this is just something you're going to have to live with and just kind of like send people on their way when there are changes that can be made, you know, not necessarily we're going to reverse it and everything's gonna be back the way it was because like your body is not the same as it was, but to have some improvement upon your symptoms so that you're not experiencing pain is always possible and is also why we're here today to talk about pain science. So I'm just like such a, a deep, wide web we could weave as to like where to start. But maybe like what's one of like the biggest misconceptions people have about pain? I think one of the biggest misconceptions that people have about pain is the fact that if you're experiencing pain, there must be something wrong with you. And that becomes a very challenging narrative because you're going to have a lot of people out there who are experiencing pain, whether it be sciatica pain or knee permanent plantar fascia pain. And then they go get evaluated by a physician, a doctor, and they get, they get the the typical medical imaging. So you have x-rays, MRIs, CT scans, and each one of these assessments will look at different tissues. And the biggest limitation is the fact that many cases you look at these images and there's nothing wrong. There's nothing. And so what ends up happening is you're experiencing pain. You go to these doctors. They're like, oh, it could be X, Y, and Z. You get it not confirmed by a medical image and you see nothing there. And you're saying, oh my gosh, am I just going crazy? And so it creates this entire cascade of events that can either increase your pain, intensify, make the pain even more robust. Or the fact that in some cases, I think one of the really cool phenomenons is the fact that you look at an MRI or an X-ray and you get that reassurance. Okay, there's nothing wrong with me. And all of a sudden the pain goes away. And so Mm -hmm. being able to say, okay, pain equals something wrong. Yeah. Well, and I think too, it's almost like, I think it would be what confirmation bias, where if you have pain and then you're like, oh, but the MRI says that I have pain and you go down the traditional routes of resolution of that pain, uh, which oftentimes who's ordering that MRI, like you said, like a doctor, which is usually like an orthopedic surgeon, because they're who the ones who know a lot about joints. That's why we go to them. And their toolbox is surgery. Like that's what we go to them for. And oftentimes the clients who come into my door, and probably your door as well, they did the surgery. They did the acupuncture. They've done the massage. They've done all the things and they still have pain, even though like whether it's the MRI saying, oh, it's not there anymore, or maybe it's still saying it there. Like there's always, not always, but oftentimes this disconnect between what the imaging is saying and like what they're experiencing in their body. For sure. And Let's talk about MRIs, for example. Um, I think medical imaging, there's a huge place for medical imaging. Um, when I work with uh, patients and also even just talking with people, medical imaging is really great because x-rays will detect fractures and growths. Um, MRIs will detect any sort of bulging disc or soft tissue injury, but also they will rule out cancers. Um, same right. thing with CT scans. CT scans are a little bit more bone focused, but really that medical imaging is to confirm that there is really nothing seriously 
as in if they're like, they need to make sure that there's no fracture and they need to make sure there's no cancer. And when there's no fracture, no cancer or no actual nerve damage, like a slippage of your vertebrae. So it's actually like, like about to cut off your spinal cord, then, right. then we're in the clear. It kind of gives us permission to say, okay, we can breathe a little bit easier. And every decade in life that we live, uh, there's a higher percentage of people who will actually have changes. They call them degenerative changes that happen with age, arthritis that will occur. And the reality is, is a large portion of those people who will actually have degenerative changes via an MRI, x-ray, whatever, and they have no pain. And so mm-hmm. all of a sudden you look at these folks who don't have any pain, but they, you look at their MRIs and they're like, oh my gosh, I don't know how they're walking. It creates a very interesting narrative idea construct, which then makes the people who are truly experiencing pain, like go, go bananas because they're like, what is wrong with me? And that's what really gets me. Yeah. And like, you know, let's say there has been some injury or whatever, like what are the actual mechanics of pain in that like initial period, but then also like, how does it still hurt two, three, four, five years later? Oh, this is, this is great. This is going to be the meat and potatoes of today, (laughs) right? So let's talk about all about the concept of like injuries and issues. So may I start off with just trying to like define uh, what pain is. Yeah, please. So from the last time I checked pain, I think you need to like Google, like what is pain? Merriam-Webster's dictionary. And pain is an, is an experience of discomfort and, and pain. So it's, it's, it's an experience. It's how you, you, the person, the listener, you and me, um, how we each individually experience or perceive a specific signal. And that's really the big part of it. And so uh, pain itself exists to protect us. It's a survival mechanism because if we experience pain and something that's telling us that we're doing something wrong, that instinct, that experience is telling us, okay, to take your hand off the hot stove, don't touch that hot fire. Um, if you're kneeling on your knees for a long period of time to get up because it doesn't feel very good. And so if we go into the concept of, if we transition into like looking at injuries, let's talk about the beginning stages of injury. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and this could be for, so for any specific tissue, whether it be so interesting enough, you strain a muscle, you sprain mm-hmm. a ligament. So mm-hmm. just, uh, so in case you're, in case you read a, a prescription and it says like quad sprain, quadricep <laughs> sprain, that's a misnomer. That is mis misrepresentation. So just yes. wanted to say that. You're like, red flag, red flag. Do you know anything? Yeah. So muscles, uh, strain, ligaments, sprain. Okay. So from there, (laughs) um, we have the initial onset, whatever injury, something happens, some sort of trauma, some sort of over, something happens, you experience, you're like, ouch, that hurts. The first 72 hours, you're going to have a lot, like you're going to have a lot of inflammation because there's truly tissue damage. And that inflammation is going to be really important because you have a lot of blood flow. Your body releases a whole bunch of hormones and cells. And what that does, it starts, well, one, uh, the inflammation protects the joint or protects the area. Uh, Number two, it actually starts to begin the tissue repair process. And Mm -hmm. in a span of... 48 to 72 hours, you're going to have a lot of inflammation. And at that point, we'll say at the initial onset of injury, the pain that you're experiencing is you 
trying to protect that joint so it doesn't get further injured. So when you have this swelling and inflammation, what's going to end up happening is that those, let's see, this is great because there's a whole bunch of different spots, but locally at that specific area of those hormones, it swells up. But then also along your nerves, it actually sends a signal up through your nerves into your spinal column and then transitions up into your brain, which actually tells you, okay, this is painful. You have to stop whatever you're doing or move around it to protect this area. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I just, I want to add too, is that differentiation between like good pain or bad pain is completely real because I remember when I injured my back as it started to feel better and the intensity of the pain was less, even though it was less intense than like hamstring soreness after a heavy lifting day, because my brain categorized it as bad pain, it was a completely different experience. It was like the wincing. I can't move. I can't do that. Whereas like a muscle soreness, which my brain is like, oh, this is good pain because we did some work. You're like, oh, it feels gross, but you're still able to move through it. And that to me is just like on a personal level, like, ah, this is reminding me that pain, even though I'm, I'm feeling it, it is real, but it's being like processed for lack of a better word in your brain. A hundred percent. And I'm glad that you brought up the, those concepts. And I don't know if you experienced this with your clients, but I know the clients that I work with and I'm introducing them to a new stretch or new position, or even just how to do soft tissue work. Sometimes they're going to be like, Ooh, this is uncomfortable, but like a good discomfort. And mm-hmm. there's some people are like, uh, uh-uh, this isn't right. And, uh, for you listeners out there, the, the brain is uh, a fascinating organ. It's it, what allows us to function as humans and ultimately being able to just be in tune and identify, okay, what am I experiencing right now? Is this a good or bad? Is this a questionable thing? Listen to those guidelines. It, it's a, it's a very good thing. Like there are some cases where you're going to go through an exercise or position and it's awkward, but it doesn't hurt. That's okay. And the same thing, if it's like, Ooh, this feels uncomfortable, but it actually feels pretty good at the same time. And interesting enough, um, the pain, pleasure and pain centers in the brain are very close to each other. And in some cases that people start to, but, but pleasure and pain centers kind of correlate, um, are close to each other, but there are going to be some clear differences. Like your brain's going to tell you this is wrong or this is right. It's kind of like when people are eating spicy food, like I love eating spicy food and (laughs) it like brings on so much pain, but I also (laughs) love it at the same time. So it stimulates it. But if I were to stub my toe, right, different story. I had no satisfaction. I have no fun when I stub my toe. (laughs) So being able to say, okay, this is something wrong. And so, you know, when you have those central processing centers in your brain, it gives you the idea to be able to say, is this something that's going to allow me to get stronger? Is this protecting me? Or is this something that's going to be a threat? And that in itself is really key. So that's what happens during the first day, like 48 to 72 hours. You're going to have a lot of inflammation. You're going to have a lot of pain. And so from there, that's the inflammatory phase. And then we have what is called the proliferation phase. That's where you're having maybe the blood flow starts to come down a little bit. You're maybe having a little bit less inflammation. There's still going to be blood flow in that area, but that's also where the body starts to generate new blood vessels and also sends a whole bunch of red blood cells and a whole bunch of other building blocks that are necessary to actually repairing whatever damaged tissue, whether it be a bone or even skin or muscle. And during that time, it's still the same mechanisms of pain where 
we have this concept of making sure that we are protecting that joint. But that's but as the swelling starts to go down, we have a little bit more freedom of motion, which gives us permission as humans to move and allow the blood to flow even better. And uh, if we look at the how pain works, like the reality is like there's three major ways that pain can be generated or dangers can be sensed in our nerves itself. It's either a mechanical deformation, like something that truly physically, like if you literally cut yourself, we also have a chemical change as well. So if you are going to like, if you're, if you're literally burning yourself, like there's a chemical mm-hmm. change because your skin goes from like regular skin to burnt skin, like that's a true chemical change. And then another piece is temperature change too. So being able to see the huge increases in temperature, those are the three major uh, instances. Those are the three major sensors that we have in our human body that helps protect us. And so whenever you experience that, uh, again, pain is a way for us to protect a specific area as it heals. Like that's, that's the major goal. And the reason why earlier before I talked about the, the experience of pain where you are going to be going through this painful sensation, uh, it's truly an experience because of the fact that, you know, you get a paper cut. I just moved houses, folks, and I got a cardboard cut. So I, if you're I was ever, like, like, no, please don't cards, say it. Those are the worst. Oh my the gosh. worst. And, what, and we're going to go into a little bit more about just envisioning this, like you're already getting chills. But like the thing <laughs> is the fact that I sliced my finger and it was so terrible. And uh, you listeners are probably feeling it right now. But then you look at some people, uh, we'll take a look at the military, for example, like Mm -hmm. in the military, they get a gunshot wound, yet they still fight. They can't feel the pain because it's like the adrenaline or their attention is shifted away from that specific wound. So we have these centers in our brain, these areas where we can bypass that signal so we can get done with the task at hand. And that's where we ride into the other parts of the nervous system, like the parasympathetic and the sympathetic nervous systems, like that part of our brain, the way that our brain functions can actually help us override a lot of these things too. And which is why pain itself is more so an experience that actually serves to, to protect us through that. Mm-hmm. The number one question I get within the comments and my DMs and my emails is, I have this issue, what should I do for it? And I get when you've tried icing and you've tried stretching and they're not really working, you probably are looking for a simple program that you can do on your own that actually works. And that's exactly why I put together the Mobility Mastery Toolkit. The toolkit includes 30 days of exercises so you know exactly what to do to improve the mobility of your hips, your lower back, your feet, your neck, and your shoulders. Plus, it comes with video demos for every single exercise and a full body mobility workout calendar so you can check it off. And again, you don't have to think about what to do. You just get it done. And with all of those resources, you're just 15 minutes a day from feeling stronger and more flexible. As a Body Nerd Show listener, you can save 50% off when you use the code MASTERY at mobilitytoolkit.co. That's right. Use the code MASTERY, M-A-S-T-E-R-Y, at mobilitytoolkit.co. And then keep me posted how it goes. That was a lot right there, but yeah, what do you have to add? Yeah, well, no, I'm just thinking too, like what are the mechanics of pain different if um, it's not an acute injury like that? Because I, you know, again, have worked with people who, okay, maybe I sprained my ankle, you know, 10 years ago and it was fine, but like, I don't know, a couple months ago, it just started hurting all the time and like, now I can't figure it out. 
what's happening there when there's not that like acute injury, you know? Yeah. So once the, like the tissue healing is done, right. We get to pass to most tissues heal around six weeks, 12 weeks, really the majority, like a large portion of the tissues are going to be healed. So then you're like, okay, well I'm healed. Why am I still in this pain already? And so there's a couple of different things that happen. Um, we'll talk about one peripherally, which is going to be anywhere outside of your spinal cord. And then we'll also talk about centrally, but Peripherally speaking, if you're having an irritated nerve, what's going to end up happening is the fact that where you might be experiencing that pain is that there's still something in the way that's continuously picking or irritating that specific area. Uh, let's talk, for example, if uh, one of your your nerve root coming out of L3, which sits between your fourth and third vertebrae, if the nerve itself is already pretty sensitive, but it's been 12 weeks since your initial injury, but for you as the, as the human consistently bends towards the side of pain and shuts down and irritates the nerve itself, having that consistent irritation will bring up the pain, even though the tissue is fully healed. So it kind of, I like to allude it as like when you're, when you're looking outside of the brain, it's kind of like a slow healing scab and slow healing scabs, um, not to be graphic for you folk, but um, slow healing scabs. The reality is that every time we do an irritating activity or stimulus, we gently pick at that scab. And when you pick at scabs, you slow down healing. You don't stop healing, but when you pick the scab, you kind of get reminded that that scab is in fact there. And what ends up happening is that you keep picking it. In some cases, you might pick the scab off and you might cause it to bleed a little bit more. And it's just a consistent irritant. And so at the tissue level, the mechanism is a consistent reminder, a consistent picking of that scab. And the best way to overcome that is by removing whatever irritating stimulus it is. So if you know that bending forward, touching your toes is, is feeling terrible, then it would be a good idea to just for a little bit of time to avoid bending forward, touching toes, let that scab heal up so there's fresh skin. And then you can go ahead and bend forward, touch your toes so there's no scab to pick. Mm -hmm. um, the second part of it is if we were to move up into the brain, we call it the, the central part of it. And if you want to check out a really interesting image on the internet, search the homunculus, which is spelled H-O-M-U-N-C-U-L-U-S. And homunculus is Latin for the little man or yeah, little, little human. And in our brains, we have the somatosensory cortex and we also have the uh, motor cortex and they pretty much run between your ears. And what's interesting is that each part of your brain is going to be representative of a specific body part. And the reality is the fact that when you injure your body, the signals go from your injured area and travels all the way up to your brain into these specific areas of your brain that represent those body parts. And the reality is that once you injure that specific area, that image in your head, that representation in your head gets a little, they, some people call it smudged. It gets a little blurry and you have that blurry representation. Um, I'm going to pause right there. I, and I'll say uh, for you listeners, I have terrible vision. I'm wearing glasses right now. I'm looking at Alex. And when I take my glasses off, I can tell that I'm talking to a person in front of me, but I cannot make out any of her features. And the same thing, if you were standing in front of me, I can tell there's a human, but I can't make out any features. I can't tell if you're running at me or doing anything. Now, if you are a person standing in front of me without my glasses and you're running towards me, even if you were like the nicest person and you're running to come give me a hug, if I see this blurry image outstretched overhead running at me really, really quickly, 
I'm going to freak out. I'm going to be mm-hmm. scared because I think that whatever's coming my way is going to be something that's going to harm me. So I'm going to tense up. I'm going to be afraid. And that's what's happening in your brain is that when you have this smudge, it's like you take your glasses off, you're getting a signal from your body. But the reality is that because it's smudged, you don't know whether it is just a light touch and sensation, a, a nice brush, maybe a cool sensation. And because your body doesn't know, your brain doesn't know what that sensation is, it freaks out. It, it puts it on guard. The first response is going to be pain saying, I don't know what the stimulus is. Mm-hmm. I'm going to say this is painful because I am scared. And so yeah. that's what we call it. Cortical changes, central sensitization, cortical smudging. That's a, that's a big term that you'll often hear. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's almost, or would it be incorrect to think of it too, as like, um, I don't know if hypersensitive, would that be the word? Like it's more reactive to that same stimulus where it wasn't before because now it's being perceived as a threat. A hundred percent. So we'll say hypersensitive. Another term you can call it like hyperalgesia, which is increased pain for just normal stimulus. Like even just like gently brushing the skin causes it to be painful. And then another term that you can use is called allodynia, A-L-L-O-D-Y-N-I-A. And those are the things where you're getting the stimulus and it's perceiving it as a threat. It is scared. It's freaked out. It, it is It is on guard. And every time it comes in, really scared, shutting down, causing pain. I got to protect. Mm-hmm. You know, and even just like thinking about pain and your brain coming from a place of fearfulness, you know, like I was just describing to a client this week of like, you know, sometimes we can get into like almost like a battle with our pain or with our injury uh, of like, well, I just want to like, you know, bend it to my will and get it to like, listen to what I'm saying. And why am I still in pain, even if I'm doing all of these things? And in I just think of like my dog. And when I got her, she was already two, um, already came pre-traumatized. And there's just so many things that I had to like adjust. I'm like, let me make sure I stay quiet and I don't raise my voice so that you don't get overstimulated. And, and like, let me almost like wait you out until you can trust me. And then we can do great and magical things together. But that's not a process that can really be rushed. And like, is that sort of similar to with your experience as well of like what happens, um, especially when we're in that like chronic pain past that 12 week mark of like tissue healing, uh, you can't force it to do it, do what you want it to do. Can you, (laughs) you cannot force it. Um, this is where we're looking at more so of like, it's not even the concept of training. It's an influence of behaviors. Um, because if we look at it, if you're, Uh, Say, for example, if you're trying to start a new exercise program or start a new mobility program, like you have to consciously think for at least the first 12 weeks to say, I have to consciously do this. Maybe at the 12 week mark, it's a little bit easier for you to implement it through your day. And that transitions into what we call a habit. And the reality is that you have your conscious practice the moment that stress happens, that conscious practice goes away because you're still trying to implement something new. When Mm -hmm. you transition and you do that on a regular basis, you go into the habit forming stage. When we're in the habit forming stage, that's where we can still go through a little bit of stress, but still carry on with this specific habit. I think we're just in general, we often, and and I notice like when I'm working with my patient, my clients, my patients, we transition, it's important not only from a habit standpoint, we have to transition into a behavior. And the behavior itself is something that you do in response to any sort of stimulus 
regardless of the amount of stress that you're going through. And so that's going to take some time. We're looking at if you've been in pain, and I often tell people when you've been in pain for uh, for a long period of time and people are asking me, Ashley, how long is it going to take for me to get back to normal? Mm-hmm. I wish I can say, I want to fix you in one visit, which in some cases I can fix people in one visit. And it's fantastic. But then the second part is realistically speaking, if we're looking at a conservative baseline, it's about one month. Uh, sorry, it's about one week for every month you've been out of the game or out of the practice. So if you've been in pain for 12 months, that means that you're looking at at least 12 weeks for you to start to be able to feel like you are in fact control uh, of how you perceive these stimuli. So then that way you can be less sensitive to the pain that you're experiencing. Yeah. And with this like new kind of understanding of pain in mind, how do you know that the healthcare provider that you're going to has this understanding of pain and not just like the basic level, like this is broken, so it hurts? Like, how would you kind of like vet the people you work with to prepare? This is a great question because when I, when people come on calls with me and it turns out that, that I might not be the best fit, when they leave these calls, I don't just say, I'm not the right person for you, best of luck. Because one, I always want to make sure that we're helping people. The best way to vet is uh, a couple of different things. Um, whether it be a healthcare professional or someone like yourself, um, you do a great job of being able to listen to the person that you're working with, right? And it's it's listening, not only just like sitting there, like pretending that you're listening, but being able to actually, one, one of the tasks that I like to do is when I learn about some story, I repeat it to them to make sure that I have the information correctly. But then I also do it because I want to make sure that the person that I'm working with or I'm communicating with knows that I am actively listening and truly understanding that I want to help them. And so the first thing is the ability to listen to, to you. And in some cases, you might have to speak for 45 minutes to an hour about your entire self before you get any sort of intervention because that person needs that specific information to come up with something. And I often get this a lot when I'm asking all these questions, my, people are going to be like, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm talking so much. And I yeah. often tell them, you don't have to apologize. This information is really crucial. And also I think what's important is to avoid confusing, sitting there getting all this information as like good quality and then like short, fast responses as like poor quality. Because I had the opportunity to speak with a physician who's seen like a multitude of patients and physician, everyone is in the business of making people feel better. And in some cases, when you've seen thousands and thousands of people like coming through, it's this ability to recognize patterns. It's this pattern recognition where some really bright people can reach conclusions really quickly. And I think that is so fantastic. And in some cases it can get lost when you're on the other end because they're like, okay, that person only spent five, 10 minutes with me, but also I think five to 10 minutes is not enough for someone to come up with an, with a, with an answer for you. But I also think that you don't always have to speak for an hour, but it's important for you to be able to have this conversation. So that's number one. Uh, number two, um, trying to be able to transition from like this model where it's like, okay, you have this specific injured tissue to like, this is why you're in pain. I don't know why you're in pain because now you're healed. Um, one of the biggest things is if some, if, if you present your MRI or someone like you present your MRI, let's just talk about back pain, for example, and you're like, I have a herniated disc at L5 S1. The reality is the fact that majority of people have a herniated disc at L5 S1. 
And if that person, that practitioner, whether it be a physical therapist, chiropractor, doctor, whoever says, I'm going to give you exercises to treat L5S1, that's the big litmus test to be able to say, is this person truly treating me or are they treating whatever they saw via an MRI? And so that in itself will have a huge influence. And the third piece is I think that statement, I don't know, is a very powerful question. And I think especially from a provider standpoint, like if you really don't know as a provider, like tell them, I don't know, but I will find this. You you can say, I don't know and do nothing about it. And then the person just disappears. um, And that gets no clarity. Number two, you can say, I don't know, but I will go ahead and look that up. So then that way I can answer that for you. And then number three, I don't know, but I think I know someone who will, let me get you in touch. And so I think that, that those three qualities are really, really key. And the last one is being able to see like, is what they're providing actually really helping you? Like if you're, if your focus is on pain relief, everything you should be doing should actually be reducing your pain. So if someone gives you a stretch or an exercise and they're like, okay, uh, you have, you have a hamstring issue. Here's these 50 different things and they don't check until like the next four weeks. Then that's another sign that they, that you should be looking for someone else, or that's a good way to vet. But if they, they're like, Oh, uh, your hamstring hurts. Okay. We're going to do this technique. How does your hamstring feel as a result? That gives you the opportunity to really see if they, one, if they know that what they're doing, but number two, if they're able to actually look at the model of pain differently than the traditional standpoint. Yeah. Those are all such great, great points. I'm like, I need to listen to it again so I can have it again. Because yeah, I think, you know, through our own education experience that we're able to kind of like vet people on the fly. But I think for just, you know, the rest of the world who are not professionals within the fitness industry, who are not a physical therapist, like you are knowing how to it's not even necessarily vetting of just like, how do I know if this person is going to be able to help me? And I think what you just shared is so super helpful for making that determination sooner rather than later so that you're not then spending, you know, six weeks of your life with someone and the whole time you're like, oh, I don't really know if this is going to work. Like that will help to make that decision sooner so that you don't waste your time. I'm thinking too of like, stretching and foam rolling and some of these other like more traditional modalities that we use when we're in pain. Uh, would you add anything to that to address the, uh, like the brain's role in pain when it comes to your own healing journey? Oh yeah. So you listened to that there when she asked that question, I had a big smile on my face because I think this is a great question too, but I think a large part of it is being able to like, so you have all these modalities, stretching, exercise, foam rolling. Um, I think, one of the big things that often gets overlooked, um, there's two big things. One is breathing. Um, and breathing is all the rave right now um, out here in the Bay Area. Uh, James Nestor wrote all about this book, wrote this book called Breathe. And it's really, really cool. But really the concept is if, if uh, the, it's this term about the concept of uh, human beings, particularly Americans, we're uh, hyperventilated, which means that there's a lot of air moving in and out of our bodies but we're also under oxygenated. That means that we're not giving the air time for us to put oxygen into our bloodstream. And if we're breathing really quickly, we're not getting enough oxygen in our lungs. We're going to kind of, we're going to ramp up our heart rate. And when your heart rate ramps up, you're also going to have an increase in inflammatory hormones. Those inflammatory hormones and elevated heart rate is going to make you even more sensitive to the pain sensations that you're experiencing. So one of the biggest things is calming the mind down. You can call it whatever you like. You can call it yoga. You can call it meditation. I like to call it breathing where you're just focusing on inhaling and slowly exhaling, slowing everything down. 
I personally, when I listen to podcasts, I listen to them all at 2x speed because it, <laughs> it, it, it holds me at my attention. And I know for myself that I move at miles a minute. And so it is important for myself to just pause, breathe, just slow down. Um, there are instances where I just sit in silence and I don't close my eyes. I don't try to say like, I'm going to meditate. I just say five minutes of just slow, quiet time. And it's going to, it's just going to ramp everything down. If you are hyper stimulated and you're like, I need to get going, I need to get going. Those five minutes will just be really, really powerful to just slow the world down, allowing you to take in the world for what it is, um, a gift and an awesome thing. Um, mm -hmm. the second piece to that, if we're looking more at the central sensation, trying to reduce the sensitivity, I think a lot of people, um, especially when we experience pain for a long period of time, we actually, uh, associate ourselves with this pain. It's like, we say the pain is me. And I think one of the big things is giving you permission to dissociate yourself and say the pain that I'm experiencing is in sensation that I am in, I am in fact going through, but it's not who I am. And being able to create that barrier or, or that separation between yourself and your pain actually helps change the narrative to help you be in more control, handle it. It might not necessarily make the pain go away, but if you can manage the pain more realistically and feel like you are in control of it, I'll tell you, it's such a powerful technique thing to go through specifically when it comes to pain management. Yeah. I mean, cause I think too, we can get stuck into the routine of like trying to do all the things and doing too much. And even when they are, you know, therapeutic type of things, sometimes you do just need to like hit pause, stop taking more stuff in and just like sit with yourself for literally a moment and just like, Hey, how, how are we doing? You know, yeah. like that's such a Mm, I mean, not only a valuable tool, but like you can't replace it. There's, there's, there's no replacement for nothing. And there are not many opportunities where nothing will happen unless we are consciously making that happen, you know? Yeah. And I'll tell you the, the first five, like when I read about this, like years ago, I think I tried to sit in five minutes of silence and I couldn't do it. It was too much. I was just like, I, I need to do something. I need to look at my phone. I need to watch a YouTube show. I need to read something while I'm like sitting here. And I'm like, uh-uh, I can just stop. I can just stop and mm -hmm. do nothing. And mm -hmm. it, it was magical. Mm. It's like revolutionary too. I'm, yeah. I'm here for it. I'm here for it. Um, well, I know we could go on for hours, literally, because we've li only scratched the surface. But can you tell us a little bit more about your free sciatica text program that you have? Yes. And so I have developed a program, which is an entirely text program where you don't have to go in and see a doctor or even a physical therapist. It's actually putting the power of treating your own sciatica pain truly in your hands because it's a text program and it's called the sciatica protocol. And it's free because I wanted to be able to provide an avenue for people to get some sort of relief and get that empowerment. And in a way, I'm kind of giving you the secrets of physical therapists on how to treat your sciatica pain. And I just came up with that this morning. It was like giving you the secrets to, to treating your, um, but I think it's really important. I think that everyone should have some sort of plan or some sort of baseline level of knowledge on how to take care mm -hmm. of their bodies. And if anything, whatever you get out of this, if, if you didn't get anything else out of this program, it would just be you being in tune with what you're experiencing and identifying what makes you feel good, what makes you feel not so good and what doesn't change your pain at all. 
Mm-hmm. And so you can find that on my website, ifixyoursciatica.com slash sciatica underscore protocol. And so that gives you the opportunity to, uh, to log in. And I also have my ebook in there as well. I'm going to provide the uh, link to the sciatica protocol to Alex. Yeah. yeah, And I will definitely put that in the show notes in the description for this episode. Um, because that's awesome to like get something that's so easy right there on your phone so that you can actually do it. Because as we all know, that's the hardest part is actually getting started. So let's remove any friction, any barriers to getting started with and make it super, super simple. So that is awesome. Well, thank you so much for sharing your brilliance and genius and nerdiness with us today. Where can we find you on the internet and your podcast? Tell us everything. Oh, absolutely. So I have a podcast of my own. It's called the Fix Your Sciatica Podcast. In case you are wondering how to spell sciatica, it's spelled S-C-I-A-T-I-C-A. And the great thing is you can find it on both Apple, Spotify, any other major podcast hosts. You can also find me on Instagram, which is going to be uh, I Fix Your Sciatica, all one word. And uh, I'm active on both. And then if you want to email me, you can email me at info at ifixyoursciatica.com. Yes. Awesome. Well, I know you'll be back because I know that we will have more to nerd about. So this is just bye for now. Um, But thank you again so much for taking the time to teach us more about pain. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Alex. So like I said, at the top of today's episode, our goal for you was really to have a better understanding of what is going on and the why behind it so that when you go see your healthcare practitioners or choose modalities to move forward with, you can have a different kind of mindset and lens about it. And this is the same reason why, you know, even if your knee hurts, when you take a more holistic perspective, we're not going to just work on your knee. We're going to look at your foot and ankle and how they're moving. And we're going to look at your hips and how your mobility is there. And we're going to look at your core and what your posture and stability is like, because all of those elements matter. And at the same time, making sure we're setting your whole nervous system up to feel safety. And it's not a straightforward path. Anyone who has been on that healing journey can definitely tell you. I remember seeing it was like a meme on Instagram where it was like the path to healing. And I feel like this works whether we're talking about psychological healing or physical healing as well. And you would, you know, what you think is it's going to be a straight line from A to B. And what it actually is, is like this meandering, winding, circling back, coming back forward, just like all over the place. Looks like a jumbled up wire kind of situation. And that could not be more accurate. But again, when you can understand the role that your brain plays in what's going on, it makes the actions of what you take that much more impactful because sometimes the best thing you can do is nothing because you need to give your nervous system, your body, your tissues, everything a chance to just exhale. So I would love to hear what your biggest takeaway was from today's episode. You can find me on social media at Hala Famala. You can find me on TikTok at AE Wellness. And let me know what your biggest aha. Uh, If you have more questions, if you just want to learn more and hang out, that is where you can find me. Also, if you have questions, you can call the Body Nerd Hotline at 818-396-6501. Or you can send me an email at hello at aewellness.com. And don't forget that show notes, fun links, free downloads, all things mentioned in today's episode and all things podcast related live over at aewellness.com slash podcast. 
and you know the drill and I'm not going to stop asking because I appreciate you and I literally, literally could not do this without you. But thank you for taking the time to subscribe to the show on whatever platform you're using, to leave a review if you haven't had the opportunity to do so already, and to share today's episode with somebody who needs to hear this message and needs to or wants to better understand the science behind pain. So here's asking better questions, moving more, being a super duper huge body nerd (laughs) and getting nerdy. And thank you for helping me spread the word that your body is super cool and you, my friend, can change the unchangeable. I'll talk to you next week. Pain stops you in your tracks and body work is one of the fastest and most effective ways to deal with it. I've put together a free PDF with the six places you need to roll right now for quick relief. Plus, the reason why what you've tried so far has only given you a temporary fix. So whether it's back pain, plantar fasciitis, neck tension, shoulder pain, or tight hips, I've got you covered. And when you download it now, I'll also send you some video demos to get you started even faster. Head on over to aewellness.com slash bodywork, that's B-O-D-Y-W-O-R-K, to get started today.